Could we turn, please, to the book of Lamentations and chapter 3? Lamentations and chapter 3. And let us look to the Lord for His help. Gracious, eternal, heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the Scripture reading, for the hymns we've been singing, for that lovely piece that Helen sang to us about God's faithfulness even in times of trial and urging us to be still, not to panic, but to be still before the Lord. As we turn now to consider this great statement of Scripture, guide us and bless us, we pray. In our Saviour's name we ask it. Amen. When you turn to verse 23, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23, it's hard to read these words, Great is thy faithfulness, and not start trying to sing it or hum the hymn that we've just sung. Every time I read these words or quote them, I think of that beautiful hymn that we have sung. Great is thy faithfulness. But do we realize the significance of those words? Do you? Some might have the idea, well, great is thy faithfulness. That's when everything's great, and the barns are full of plenty, and all's going well with us, and everything's rosy. That's when we want to have praise in our heart and sing, Great is thy faithfulness. Well, no. No. It's the very opposite. Very opposite. Because Jeremiah cries out these words, not when things were going well, but in a time of unimaginable death, destruction, devastation, utter despair, blackness and darkness emotionally, mentally, that we can hardly imagine. And in the very depths of a horrifying situation, by faith, he cries out directly to the Lord, Lord, great is your faithfulness. So we need to understand that to look at the context. You should always look at the context of a verse. What is the context? Well, I've already said it's a series of poems. Now, the Hebrew Bible doesn't call it Lamentations. That's in our English Bible, to give in that heading. It's actually the first word of chapter 1, 2, and 4. If you look back, you'll see it there. Alas, or how, how. It actually means alas. In other words, it's a sense of shock. That's what the Hebrews call this book. How? How can God allow this to happen? How can this happen to our beautiful city? And the poems, if you take time to read them, it describes that terrible horror. You see, the city that was a wonderful city, God's chosen city, it's in absolute ruins. The devastation is so bad it tells us in Jeremiah, and if you read this book as well, that even women resorted to cannibalism. Yes, even their own children. Can you imagine such a thing? It's unimaginable, and yet it happened. It's a horror. Everything's in ruins. The cream of the young 
society have been carried captive. Men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Babylonians have taken them hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, and it's only a few poor people scavenging among the ruins are left in that beautiful city. And Jeremiah looks at that where the glorious temple used to stand, built by Solomon. Historians tell, it, tell us it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Rich people would travel to see the magnificence of that structure, and it's in ruins. No wonder Jeremiah, alas, why? Why has all this happened? But not only is he devastated because of the ruins in the city, but if you look back to verse 1, there's personal despair. Verse 1 of chapter 3, I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. I'll not go over the other verses we read, but look at verse 15. God, that's he, filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with the wormwood. Ever heard the expression, what a bitter cup I've had to drink? Look at verse 19. Remember mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. And we could think nationally of our city, Belfast. Oh yes, there's many a new building rising that looks so beautiful. But morally, spiritually, socially, there's been awful devastation since I was a boy. Unimaginable. Alas, alas. But then maybe you're like Jeremiah this morning, and you say, it's a personal thing. I'm in personal despair in my family. You see, it was not just the Babylonians brought this devastation. Did you notice, for instance, verse 1, it's the rod of his, God's wrath. In verse 15 again, he, that's God, hath filled me with bitterness. Back to verse 4, he, that's God, made his skin old. Verse 6, he, God, has set me in dark places. See, God did it. It's one thing to look at terrible things that happen in our life, and terrible things that happen maybe in our family, in our situation. We say, oh, the devil did it. Satan did it. No, Jeremiah says God did it. Not for us. Not for us as believers in God's sovereignty do we say Satan did it. And that's what adds to the horror. You see, God, God is sovereign. He did it. And in the midst of this unimaginable horror, and I can't describe it in my words, but just read the passage. Jeremiah cries out, Lord, your faithfulness is great. The context. But then we need to clarify the term. What does he mean by faithfulness? What does this mean? Well, you know the word in Hebrew. Every one of us from probably the very youngest can speak this word in the Hebrew language. See that word faithfulness in your Bible? You can all speak it in Hebrew. Amen. You can speak that. You're speaking Hebrew. Maybe you didn't realize that, but that's Hebrew. Amen. I know it's used in the New Testament too, in the New Testament written in Greek, but it's actually the Hebrew put in. Amen. 
Amen. What does that word mean? We use it, of course, after prayer and so on, so be it. We think of that. But the real meaning of the word is true, dependable. It's used in 2 Kings 18 to describe, you know, the the pillars of the temple. They were amen. They were faithful. How do you describe a pillar as faithful? It was there, firm, stable, unmovable, always the same. Can you see the meaning of the word amen? God is always firm. The Savior used this word in the New Testament when he was about to say some profound, important statement. Amen, amen, verily, verily. It's translated in our version. Faithful, faithful is what I'm about to say. And in the midst of this awful tragedy, Jeremiah says, Lord, you're faithful. You're faithful. You're dependable. You're reliable. And I notice in verse 21, this is important. This I recall to my mind. It's just as Helen sang to us. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Yes, he's weeping. And in the book of Jeremiah, he wrote... He said he wept so much he couldn't even weep anymore. (laughs) Can you imagine that? He said, I've wept so many tears. There's no more tears to come. Lord, give me more tears. That's the utter shock he's in. But he says, no, I sat down and I thought about it. You see, it's a deliberate act of the will. You see, sit down and think. Nothing happens without God willing it to happen before it happens. Now, that's fact. And without God willing it to happen in the way that it happens. Now, God is not the author of evil, but he's sovereign, and nothing happens outside his will. That's what we mean by God's sovereignty. You see, we need a good grasp of doctrine, of theology. And don't let those words scare you. All we mean is the truth of God's Word, who God is. That's what we mean. We need a good grasp of that. You see, so often as Christians, we go by our feeling. And if a tragedy comes, oh, oh, I want to get peace. I want to get a feeling. I want, or people say, well, just have faith. Faith in what? No, the Christian life is based upon fact. Not the circumstances around us that we can see, and they're terrible, so therefore we'll feel bad. No, fact, then faith, then feeling. Very important. Fact, put your faith in the fact, no matter how awkward it seems around you, then comes the feeling. You know, of course, I just thought of an illustration of a pilot. They look at the gauge. They don't go by how high they think they are or what. They look at the gauges on the plane. In other words, what I'm saying is you get into your mind the truth of God's Word and the truth of who God is, that He's in control of all things, that He is always dependable and reliable, always. 
And then you put your faith in that, Lord, I'm trusting you even though I can't understand all the circumstances around me. I'm basing my faith on the fact of who you are. Ah, well, then will come the feeling later. Don't get the order wrong. What I'm saying is, Jeremiah, I recall to mind. And he cries out, great is thy faithfulness. You see, that's what we need in time of trouble. I remember years ago hearing a pastor in America, and there was a family in the church had an awful tragedy, awful tragedy. And it was a few weeks later when they come out to church, and the pastor really felt bad because he had prepared a message all about God's sovereignty, how God wills all things and so on, and he didn't really deal with comfort and how God comforts us. And, and he thought, oh, I've failed. And he, he was going to speak to the family. I'm sorry, I didn't realize you'd be out or I would have. You know what the father came before the pastor got speaking? Pastor, thank you for that message. That's just what we needed. It's just what we needed in the midst of this awful tragedy to know that God is sovereign. We need to clarify the term. God is always dependable, always reliable, always reliable. And the fact that the judgment came proves it. Proves it. You say, how come? You see, God had promised the people that if you don't repent, the nation of Israel, if you don't repent, you'll go into captivity. Judgment will come. The city will be destroyed. And the false prophet said, God wouldn't destroy Jerusalem. It's his city. It couldn't happen to us. We're God's people. And Jeremiah warned and warned. And he said, no, God is saying judgment's coming. And finally, the people wouldn't repent. And God told Jeremiah, don't pray for them anymore because judgment's coming. And Jeremiah preached that he said, judgment is coming. The Babylonians are going to destroy this city. Now, it happened. That proves God's reliable. But the good part of the promise was God not only promised to destroy the city, he promised after 70 years that people would come back and it would be rebuilt. See, that's what comforted Jeremiah. Think of the context clarify the term. Look at the companions of God's faithfulness. The companions, you see them there in verse 22? There's two of them. It's of the Lord's mercies, plural. Sometimes it's translated loving kindnesses, loyal love, steadfast love, covenant love. What do we mean by that? Well, sometimes people would make a covenant, a solemn binding promise to stand by each other. Remember David and Jonathan? Jonathan gave David his garment, his sword. What's he saying? I'll stand with you. We're brothers. We're even closer than brothers. We're bound by a solemn covenant before God. It's called the Lord's oath that we will help each other and stand by each other. Well, you see, God has made a covenant. What's that covenant? God the Son came into the world to do all that was necessary to save a people. And if you're saved this morning, you're in a covenant with God. You see, Christ, when he shed his blood, it's called the blood of the everlasting covenant. You know, in legal documents, solicitors and so on, they stamp it with a seal. When Christ shed his precious blood on Calvary, you know that God's covenant is absolutely reliable and sure. And what's the covenant? I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
I will save them. I will bring them to heaven. I will give them eternal life. All the blessings of salvation. You see, if you're a Christian this morning, you're in that covenant relationship. And the idea of mercy is here. I know we use the word, oh, merciful to people and so on. But it's actually stronger than that. It's that tender, loving kindness that's given to those who are in a covenant relationship with God. You see, God always, always, always deals with his believing people in mercy. Always. Even when they wander away, even when he chastens, it's in mercy. Look at the second companion. Verse 22. Compassions. Well, you say, well, that's, we all know what that means. Yes, well, the word actually is used of a mother's love for her newborn baby. Here's a new baby. The mother, oh, how tenderly she cares for that baby. If it cries in the middle of the night, the mother's up caring for it. She feels for it. Oh, she'd love to suffer in its place. And in Isaiah 66 and 13, it says, like as a mother comforts her children, so will I comfort you. In fact, in another verse in Isaiah, said that, that sometimes a mother may forsake her children. Now, that's a horrible thing, but it can happen. It's, it's unusual. We read about it sometimes in the paper, and it shocks you. How could a mother do that with her newborn child? But God says that can happen, but I'll never forsake you. The idea of compassion here is this love. As Jeremiah wrote in his prophecy, chapter 31 and 3, I've loved thee with an everlasting love. It means that his love, God is faithful. God is faithful. What does that mean practically? His love towards you never changes, Christian. You say, but why did this happen to me? Why did this awful tragedy? If God loves me, why? Why? Why did this happen? Listen back to the fact. God is faithful in his love. He'll always love you. I read many years ago a story by Mark Guy Pierce. He was a preacher in the uh, sort of late 1800s, early 1900s. And Mark Guy Pierce had a couple of children. He was in the study and he heard his daughter speak to younger brother. And she said this, You'd better be good or daddy won't love you anymore. So Mark Guy Pierce wrote in a book, I thought it was time to stop preparing my sermon and do some practical teaching at home. So he got the children, he said, Dear, that's not right what you said to your brother. But daddy, if he's bad, you'll not love him. Oh no, he's my son. I'll always love him. When he's good, I love him with a love that brings me joy. When he's bad, I love him with a love that yes, brings me sorrow, but I love him. God loves you, believer. When bad things happen, don't let Satan tell you, oh, God doesn't love you. Even he chastens in love. And believer, there's something about human nature, even when we're saved, that we've got this sinful notion. If only I prayed more. If only I worked more for the Lord. If only, now, we ought to pray more. We ought to, but we've got this idea. If only I do that, if only I am more faithful, then God will love me more. But it's Satan's lie. God can't love you any more than he loves you at this moment. Because you've been loved from before eternity. 
You're loved with an everlasting love. The newest believer is loved as much as an apostle Paul. Do you understand his love? It's always dependable. It's always faithful. He'll never stop loving you. I remember one morning, quite a number of decades ago, saying in church, I said that part, and then I said this. Believer, you think about this. If you, now, this is only if you're truly saved. If you're truly one of the Lord's children, and there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any less. One lady told me afterwards when you said that, and she's a fine believer, I said, that couldn't be right. That couldn't be right. Couldn't be. Of course, I went on to explain, yes, by your life you can bring the Lord sorrow and displeasure, yes. But the Lord still loves you and he'll chasten you. But he'll do it in love to bring you back. And that, that thought doesn't lead you to say, oh, well, live as alike then. No, no. That thought that we grieve the Lord ought to make us more holy. I remember a couple of years after that, but she told me just shortly after that sermon, she was, I, I never heard anything else you said in the rest of your sermon. <laughs> Maybe that happens a lot, I don't know. Horrific accident, and not go into it, but a horrific accident. She lay in intensive care for quite a long time. Visited her on quite a few occasions. But finally, when she became more alert and accomplishment, you know the first thing she said? She said, when I awoke out of the induced coma and so on, the first thought came to my mind, Mr. Johnson, remember years ago you preached and you said, there's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you any less. You're loved with an everlasting love. And you told that story about Mark I.P. He said, that was the first thought in my mind. That no matter what happens, God loves me. God loves me. The companions, the companions, not amazing. The companions, the context, the context, God's love never changes. I think of C.H. Spurgeon, by the way. Uh, there's a lovely story of him. He was visiting one of his members, a farmer, and he looked up at the barn, and there was one of these weather vanes, and it had on it God as love. You know, that swing round. A few young people mightn't quite know what I'm talking about. Sometimes they put, sometimes it's a rooster or whatever, and it'll point where the wind's blowing. And he looked up, and there was something written on the weather V, and God is love. So Spurgeon, with a twinkle in his eye, said to the farmer, Oh, I, I suppose you mean God's love changes with the wind? Farmer says, No, no, pastor, you know what I mean. I put it there, because no matter what way the wind is blowing, God is always love. Believer, have you thought about that? Now, the last point, the context, to clarify the term, the companions of faithfulness, the confidence. You see, this gives confidence. Jeremiah, he realizes, yes, even the punishment, although he's devastated, it's a proof that God will keep the rest of his covenant and the people will come back. And so in verse 24, look what he says. Verse 24, therefore will I hope in him. That's confidence. That doesn't mean, oh, I hope so. You know, people say, keep your chin up. Everything will turn out all right. Or hope for the best. It's not talking about hope like that. 
The word in the Bible means certainty, blessed assurance, absolute confidence. That's what he's saying. I have absolute confidence in myself, no, in the Lord, in the Lord. And because he has absolute confidence, he says two things, two things. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, the Lord himself. Remember the tribe of Levi, they didn't get land because the Lord was their inheritance. The Lord himself is our inheritance. That's why sometimes when I read that verse, thinking of the future, you remember in 1 Peter, we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Sometimes believers tend to think, oh, that's the streets of gold. That's the mansions. That's the... Listen, I believe the inheritance is Christ. Heaven is Him. It's having the Lord. And do you realize, Christian, this morning, your portion is the Lord. Now, portion doesn't mean like a portion of apple tart or a portion, you know, a, a little slice. The word portion to the Israelite meant my inheritance, my inheritance. And you see, because, Christian, you're in Christ, you have a great portion, the Lord. You remember, the word Christian is only mentioned three times in the Bible. But those who believe in Christ are called over and over again, for instance, Ephesians 1, you're in Christ, in Him, in whom, in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3, you're a blessed, and it means already, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you rose again with Christ. Salvation, you're united to Christ. All that Christ is and all that he has done belongs to you. One day, he said, you'll share his glory. Revelation 3 and 21, you'll sit with me on my throne in glory. You see, you're entitled to all the blessings. It's not that you hope to get these blessings in the sense of a wish. They're yours now. God has blessed you. You mightn't have entered into them, but they're there because you have Christ. You have Christ as your Savior. He purchased these blessings on Calvary. I remember years ago at Christmas for the children in the service, I got a little boxes, you know, small gift boxes wrapped with Christmas paper, and I put on them forgiveness, eternal life, access to God, answers to prayer, peace, joy, all these things. And then I got a big box, you know, a big cardboard box, and I lifted them in, joy, peace, eternal life, assurance of salvation, sins forgiven. And I put them all in the big box, and I did wrap the paper, and then I turned it round, and everybody could see the Lord Jesus Christ. When you have the big box, you have all that's in the box. <laughs> Trying to teach to the children. When you have Christ, you have an unimaginable inheritance. Do you need peace, Christian? You've already got it. You say, oh, I don't feel like I've got... But it's in Christ. You've got him. Do you need joy, Christian? Do you not realize you've already got it? And I say, no, I don't feel very joyful. No, no, there's times we don't enjoy the enjoyment. <laughs> but here's what we mean. You have Christ. 
Christ has made unto us wisdom. Christ, he is our peace. Don't think of these things as something he just plonks down. It's him. You see, what Jeremiah is saying is, the Lord is everything to me. He's everything I need. Oh yes, there's all these devastation and heartache and trial and they're real. Yes, they're sorrowful. Yes, they're painful. But the Lord is everything to me. He's everything to me. That's the idea of what he's saying here. And I look back at verse 12 just very quickly. Here's one verse that gives me the encouragement to know that I have this wonderful portion that I can enjoy these blessings. God hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. Now, Jeremiah was talking about himself. But when you read the Old Testament, always look for illustrations and pictures of Christ. I've taken that in children's meetings sometimes because of a bow and arrows from New Guinea when we were there, and the people still did hunt with them, and actually before we came, killed people with them. He hath bent, God hath bent his bow. Psalm, I guess verse 7 says, he has bent his bow against the wicked. And you, I see the gospel in that verse. You say, hi. You see, the arrow speaks of judgment. You remember Ahab, the arrow of God's judgment found him out. And I deserve judgment, fair judgment, because God is loving and gracious, but I'm a sinner. I've offended, and the law demands death, and I deserve that. That arrow is coming towards me, just as it went towards Ahab and that chariot, that arrow of God's judgment, eternal hail. But thank God the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, stepped in front of me and said, I will take Ron Johnson's hail. I will take the judgment that he deserves so that he can be forgiven. You can say that, Christian, this morning. And when you think about that, his wonderful love, then you say, the Lord's my portion. The Lord's merciful. He's always gracious. You look at Calvary, and you can say, great is thy faithfulness. I read a story quite a while ago, Marshall, the name of the father, and Susan Shelley, one child was born with, I'm not going to it, very severe difficulties. And they saw two other children die with a period of four months. Mandy died after years, well, four-year-old she was, but awful years of care, hospital visits, etc., etc., etc. She was expecting her second child. The doctor said, no, have an abortion. There's no way your child can live with this and this and this. They said, no. But the father describes in an article that I read that was in a magazine called Moody Monthly way back in 1981, how that the child was born, the doctors took it and put it into the mother's arms, and she held her child, her husband came in, and with, after a minute began to turn blue. Two minutes, the child was dead. The pastor came in, some of the older children. He related in the article, we wept, we hugged each other, we hugged the child, the, lo the loss was crushing but mingled with the tears and terrible pain, there was something else. The nurses said, did you have a name for your son? Oh yes, Toby. 
Toby. Oh, that's a lovely name. Yes, we chose it because Toby is short for Tobiah. God is good. We're naming our son. God is good. Later he wrote that some people said, but what do you mean God is good? Why would God create your son to live for two minutes? Why would God create your son to live for just two minutes? He would answer, he didn't. He created him for eternity. Do you understand it? What age are you? No matter what age, when you know Christ, you're created for eternity. Of course, I believe those die young will be in glory. He was testified, God is good. I finish with this. A preacher I know of, he used to minister in Belfast here. It was one of my friends told me he heard him on the tape. He went to a very large church in America just a couple of years ago, a new church. And one Sunday he made an announcement. I did it graciously. I can only summarize it. He said, since I've come to the church, I've got to know many of you, and I'm so pleased when you come and tell me things such as, oh, you know, my son there had the cancer and so on. and It's in remission. Isn't God good? Or, oh, my daughter, remember we're praying for her exams at the university. She got great grades. Isn't God good? And he said, I'm so pleased that you tell me these things and you share and I rejoice with you. But there's something that I want to say to the congregation. There's something that troubles me when you're speaking to me. Because you'll say, such and such recovering isn't God good. So and so did well, isn't God good? Listen, God's good all the time. God's good all the time. As the father of that little baby said, ending his article, life is hard, but God is good. Can you say this morning, great is thy faithfulness. Of course, if you don't know Christ, you can't say any of these things because you don't have the assurance that the Savior is yours.